Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Again, if I've never met you, my name's Scott, and I'm the pastor here, and well, we're so glad to have you with us. Um, my family does not have cable TV, but every time my family is on vacation or in another house that does have cable TV, uh, we always turn on the TV, and I feel like always the same show is playing, which is American Ninja Warrior. Uh, does anybody watch American Ninja Warrior? Uh, it's basically like an obstacle course for adults. Uh, you got to try to like get through it and see if you're strong. And I don't know why it's always on TV. Maybe Netflix and Hulu and like everybody else took everything else and all cable has left is American Ninja Warrior. I don't know. But I do love me some American Ninja Warrior. The human interest is there. The feats of strength are amazing. It's great. And one time we were watching and there was this woman who I'll call Amber who was about to have her turn on this obstacle course. And before she went, they showed this film about her backstory, which they often do, about how she kind of trained all that so hard and overcome adversity. And by the end of the, the film of her backstory, you know, we were rooting for her. We were really moved. And so by the time it flips back to her on the course, you know, everybody's super stoked because this woman has overcome all this adversity and she's about to go and everybody's like, Amber, Amber, Amber. And Marissa and I are cheering on our couch and we're really excited. And her first obstacle was she was going to run, and then she had to like hop on these little blocks and then jump over some water to grab onto a pole or something. And everybody else had done it pretty easily, and so we we're super stoked. She runs, she jumps, everybody's cheering, and then like mid-arc in the air, you can just tell she is not going to make it. And she basically just smashes, smashes her face on the side of the platform and falls into the water, and it was an epic fail. Uh, so Marissa and I on the couch are like, Amber, Amber, and then like, oh, like, oh, you can hear the whole crowd just kind of, you know, shock back. Compelling backstory, heroic effort, commendable effort, and then a face-smashing fail. Welcome. I knew you would like that, Ian. Welcome to Genesis chapter 12. Um, the drama of Genesis chapter 12 concerning Abraham, whose name at this point in the book of Genesis is Abram. So I'm going to say Abram, same person as Abraham, is parallel to Amber in American Ninja Warrior. Compelling backstory, heroic effort that makes you want to go, Abram, Abram, and then an epic fail. This is a kind of a weird, uh, obscure, ancient story of a guy saying his sister or his wife is actually his sister. Um, it's not the most pleasant story. It's not the most interesting story in the Bible. So especially if you're new to Christianity or if you're, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you might be like, what are we talking about here? Um, but I am convinced that in this little drama of Genesis chapter 12, we basically have a picture of the central narrative of all of Genesis, the main drama of Genesis, the main drama of the Old Testament, the main drama of the gospel, and actually the drama of your life. I'm totally convinced of it. It's all here if we have eyes to see it. There is a feast in this chapter of hope, of challenge, and of consolation from Holy Scripture. So I want us to lead us through a study of Genesis chapter 12. I want us to unpack that because you're probably like, that's ridiculous. That's totally not in Genesis chapter 12. 
Uh, but let's go on an adventure in Genesis chapter 12, and then we're going to back up and see what it reveals to us about the book of Genesis, which we're going to be studying for the next two months, the gospel, and then your life. Sound good? Would you pray with me as we dive in? Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that when we come under your word and when we read your word, we are playing with fire, fire like the burning bush that burns but does not consume us. And so this morning, Lord, we do pray that the full life and the full beauty and the full power of your holy word would come into this room and would pierce our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Okay, so let's unpack the drama of Genesis 12. Um, there are four central elements that make up this drama like four acts of a play, and I'm gonna take the whole chapter uh, of Genesis 12. The first act of this chapter is God's promises. God's promises. So look with me at verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These three verses are a turning point in scripture and they set the agenda for the rest of the Bible. And for those of you who tracked with us last year, we're, we're studying uh, the first five books of the Old Testament during the summer for the next five summers. We hope to go all the way from Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's gonna be really fun as a summer Bible study. But we talked about this. Um, by Genesis 12, the world has broken and fallen apart because of sin, and it is here, through these promises, that God sets forth his plan of redemption. So this is like God's platform for global transformation. It's all packed into these three verses. And there are four unique promises in these verses, and I'll just say them really quickly. The first is that God's gonna give Abram a family. That's when he says, I'm gonna make you a great nation which is a big deal because Abram and Sarah are barren at this point. The second promise is that God will give Abram's family a land, and we actually see this promise come in verse seven when God says to Abram once he leaves, to your offspring I will give this land. The third is that God will bless Abram's family, meaning God is promising to pour out his favor and set his love on Abram's family. Um, blessing is the opposite of a curse, right? And that is really important in this chapter because after the fall in Genesis 3, Genesis is full of curses. The world comes under a curse, and so what God is saying here is essentially, to your family, I'm promising to transfer you from under the curse to be under my blessing. So that's one of his promises. And finally, the fourth promise is that through Abram's family, which is blessed, God will bless all the families of the earth. So what's God's promise? One, he's gonna turn this random guy into a nation. Two, he's gonna give him a land. Three, he's gonna pour out his favor upon this family. He's gonna bless this family so that, number four, the whole world can be blessed. 
God's promises I love are specific enough to apply to one nuclear family, but they're big enough to entail like cosmic redemption and transformation. This is the hinge of Genesis and is a major turning point in all of world history. So that's the first act, God's promises. This is like the compelling backstory leading up to Amber's American Ninja Warrior feats, okay? The second act is Abram's faith. So first God's promises, second is Abram's faith. Abram responds to God's promises and obeys his command to go. And this was our last sermon on Genesis was about this. Verse four says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. This is amazing. Abram essentially leaves the security and identity of his whole life, everything, and he steps out heroically into the unknown because at that point it was unknown. He chooses to enter into the current of God's promises. He gets in. He chooses to live by them. He chooses to live under them and he opens himself up to the promises of God and to the blessing of God. And the crowd goes wild. Abram, Abram, Abram. It truly is an epic moment. Abraham is called the father of our faith for many reasons, but this is one of them. This is not unlike when Jesus says to somebody, follow me, and they get up and they start following him. This is beautiful. He believed in God, St. Paul says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, but the third act of this drama, as we already discussed, is Abram's failure. Following on the heels of this heroic leap of faith is the face smash. Um, and if you're reading, if you have a Bible and you're reading Genesis chapter 12, it's almost split evenly in half. The promises of God and Abram walking and then this second story. So here's the basic storyline of verses 10 to 16. There's a famine. And so Abram and his wife Sarah are forced to go down to Egypt to get food. And on the way there, Abram starts thinking about how good looking his wife is. It's like, man, Sarah's really good looking. And he starts worrying that Pharaoh probably would want her. And that in order to get her, he probably would just kill Abraham in order to have his wife. And just to, to pause here for a second, this probably was a, you know, he had reason to think this, but at this point, this is a purely hypothetical fear. Nothing about this was certain. He's not listening to God at this moment. He's not thinking about God's promises at this moment. He's starting to listen to fear. He's getting out of the current of God's promises and he's stepping into the current of his anxiety. That was his first mistake. The first thing that led him toward the epic fail. And when the fear takes root, it gives birth to a really, really dumb, embarrassing idea, okay? So look with me at verse 11. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, and I, don't, wouldn't you love to know his tone and how he said this? I know that you're a, a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they're gonna say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they're gonna let you live. So I, I have an idea. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might, may be spared for your sake. 
there are a lot of different ways to read this. Uh, as I've studied this, this this week in terms of whether this was just pure cowardice or whether he was really trying to be wise in order to keep them both alive. But regardless of how you see it, it's pretty cold and it's definitely self-preserving. And I hope you can see that. I love the classic Seinfeld scene where Jerry and Elaine, their flight gets switched and the, the woman says to them, okay, we have a new flight for you, but there's one tickets in coach and one is in first class. And they look at each other and Jerry goes, oh, well, I'll take first class. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I've been in first class before. I know what I'm missing. Elaine, you've never ridden first class before. You know, you, you got to live back there in coach. It's just so like, and she's just shocked by how selfish she is in the moment. This is like that, except way more serious, way more shocking. I mean, he basically says, so that I'm okay, why don't you go into Pharaoh's harem? Can you imagine? Uh, I've said some dumb things to Marissa before, and her expression says a thousand words back. I'm trying to imagine Sarah's expression. This is the face smash. <laughs> and it comes right on the heels of one of the great leaps of faith in all world history. If before you were going, Abram, Abram, on your couch, now you're like, oh, this is embarrassing. It's an epic fail personally because Abraham prostitutes his wife to save his own skin. And sadly, if you look at verse 16, he actually gets rich off of it. Did you notice that? Pharaoh's like, oh, that's great. Well, let's give her brother uh, a bunch of cattle. And so he kind of makes money off of this transaction. But it's an even greater fail on a grand covenantal, big picture God level because by doing this, he's jeopardizing God's plan to work through their family, which is the main point in this passage. What God sets up as a platform for global restoration is immediately thrown into question. Just verses later, by the cowardice and sin of the man that he chose to work through. That is what you should be really shocked when you're reading this. Oh my gosh, how is God gonna bless all the families of the earth if this marriage gets separated? What Abraham has done by doing this is he has gone and made everything messy. Really, really messy. Think about all the mess this brought into to his marriage. Think of how messy and twisted and complicated this made God's plan. Have you ever done something stupid or embarrassing, and I know you have because you're a human being, I have, and it just complicated things? In an instant, things get so tied up in knots to the point where you're wondering, how am I ever gonna untie this? How could I ever get out of this pickle that I have just now put myself into? That's what I imagine Abraham is feeling at the end of verse 16 when his wife is in Pharaoh's harem and he's getting really rich in Egypt. So the first act has to do with the promises of God. That's really clear in this chapter. The second is Abraham's faith, which is celebrated throughout the rest of scripture. The third is Abraham's failure, which is him getting out of line of God's promises. But praise God, there's a fourth act to this drama. And that is the grace of God. So first we have the promises of God. We have Abraham's faith. We have his failure. And then fourth, we have the grace of God. Verse 17, 
but. Amazing, amazing conjunction in this passage. That's a conjunction, right? Yeah, okay. I don't know anything about grammar. I should not have gone into grammar there. But it's a really significant word in this story. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. What God does here is gracious. It might not seem like it, but hang with me. It's tender. It's powerful. It's loving. And it's easy to blow right by it. And to me, this has been become to me one of my favorite examples of grace in the Bible. Because here we see how God's grace intervenes. God steps in right into the middle of the mess that Abram had made. In this story, God's not on the sidelines. He's not aloof. He doesn't promise something and then peace out. He gets involved, even though he's never asked. Did you notice that? Abram, at least we don't have his recorded prayer of, oh, Lord, what have I done? Please intervene for me. He's getting rich, and God intervenes. Brothers and sisters, our God is a God who intervenes. Amen? Don't you love that about him? When he's not asked to? When he doesn't have to, he steps into our mess. We also see in this story how God's grace restores. So what God does is essentially clean up the mess that Abram had made. He gets them out of their pickle. He afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. He lets Pharaoh know who Sarah is. And as a result, what's the result? The family gets back together and they leave Egypt with all the spoils of Egypt in tow. This is God being true to his promise, all the promises he made. I'm gonna make you a family. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless all the world through you. It's also God being so forgiving towards Abram. Abram deserved to remain on his face here. He had created the pickle, right? He tied the knots, but God stepped in and restored what had been made supremely messy. But not only that, we also see how God's grace is preventative in this, in this passage. And this is one of my favorite parts about this passage. From the context in the story, we're able to infer that Pharaoh had never consummated his relationship with Sarah. And God intervened, and that's a grace. He steps in to prevent Abram's sin from fully conceiving its consequences. He steps in to stop Abram from fully carrying out the plan that he wanted to do. And that is a serious, serious grace. He comes in between it. My favorite example of this kind of preventative grace is from Lord of the Rings, and I'm, I use too many of these examples, but I have a low quota right now, so here's my last one for a while. Um, when Frodo, at the very end of the Lord of the Rings, has turned in on himself, he decides to not destroy the ring, but to keep it. And it is capital G grace in Tolkien's story that Gollum bites off his finger and takes away the choice from Frodo of doing what he had intended. And on the other side of that, Frodo is so relieved that grace stepped in in that moment. That is what God is doing in this story. His grace intervenes and restores and prevents. And Abram and Sarah, like I said, leave town together with all the spoils of Egypt. 
So let's summarize the drama really quick. First act, you have God's promises to bless a family, to bless the world. Second and third, you have that family's heroic moment of faith, an epic moment of failure. And fourth, you have God's grace, which works through and alongside that family to not allow the family to destroy itself or thwart the promises of God. That's what God's grace is doing in this passage. And I love, if you wrote out those four points, the faith and failure of Abram and Sarah is sandwiched in between the promises of God and the grace of God. And as I said at the beginning, I think in this story and in that four-act drama, you have a picture of the drama of the whole book of Genesis. It is those four things. It is the story of God's promises at the beginning of chapter 12 playing themselves out through the drama and dysfunction of Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. It, like I said in my last sermon on this, it's like this super messy, multi-series drama, like a super messed up Downton Abbey <laughs> that God is working through in the book of Genesis. And yes, there are moments of brilliance and faith displayed in this generational family, times that make you wanna go, Abram, Sarah, Jacob, like way to go. And then there are also plenty of times where the family falls flat on its face, where selfishness, perversion, and violence rule the day, amongst other things. And what does that sound like? Sounds like all of our families, amen? We all have messy families. One of the things I think that's comforting about the Bible, and particularly in the book of Genesis, is that the family that God chose to work through to save the world is, my hunch is, far more dysfunctional than your family. I mean, there is some serious dysfunction in the book of Genesis and Abraham and his descendants. But the comfort of that is in Genesis, we see the grace of God weaving itself through that family intervening, restoring, preventing, taking the evil intentions of people and transforming them into good, which is how Genesis ends with that one-liner. Keeping the promises of God intact, pouring out blessing on the dysfunctional families so that one day all the families of the earth can be blessed. So we're gonna study for the next two months the bulk of Genesis, and this is the framework that I want us to carry as we're studying it. We're going to watch this family plod along, and we're going to watch the people of God be sandwiched in between his promises and his grace. And it's really the key to interpreting the book of Genesis. And so if there's ever a story in Genesis you don't understand, you can ask, what promises of God are either being threatened or fulfilled at this moment? And then you can also ask, where's God's grace in this? It's really amazing. But it's not only Genesis that's in Genesis 12. Like I said, it's, it's kind of the story of everything. There are two major defining moments in the Bible that reveal who God is. One of those is the Exodus in the Old Testament, and the other one is the cross in the New Testament. And they are both right here in this funny story. Did you catch all the overtones of the Exodus in this passage? It is literally a proto-Exodus. Abraham's family goes down to Egypt because there's a, fam a famine in order to get food. Does that sound familiar? 
That's what Joseph's going to do. They end up later getting in a bind, in a pickle. Pharaoh is afflicted by God by plagues so that finally he lets Abram's family go and they leave Egypt with the spoils of Egypt. It's crazy. The Bible's amazing. But anywhere you see the Exodus, you're also looking at a picture of the cross because Jesus called what he was about to do his Exodus, right? So in this little drama, we also see the cross of Christ where humanity had epically failed and what Romans would say, fallen short, which I think there's no other good image to understand what the Bible is trying to say than thinking of American Ninja Warrior and Amber almost getting there and smashing into the platform. When humanity had done that, God intervened through Jesus by grace to stop the consequences of sin. Amen? On the cross, Jesus graciously stopped us from getting what we wanted. We had chosen the path of death. We had chosen to reject our creator and our maker and forfeit his inheritance. But in Jesus, God steps into our mess in the incarnation. He intervenes on a historical, global scale, and he prevents us from destroying ourselves and thwarting God's promises. And the central place we see the cross in Genesis 12 is in that word, affliction. In Genesis 12 and in the Exodus, Pharaoh is the one who is afflicted by God so that God's family can go free. But on the cross, in the deep wisdom and love of God, it is God himself who is afflicted so that all the families of the earth who have had face-smashing fails can go free. Isaiah says of the Christ in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and what? Afflicted. We made the mess. We tied the knots. We listened to fear instead of the promises of God and the word of God, and we made dumb decisions. But God laid all of the plagues all of the mess on his son. And he did it so that the whole family of God who had been separated by sin could get back together again like Abram and Sarah and leave the place of our bondage to walk out of Egypt and to walk into freedom. We didn't ask for it. We didn't deserve it, but Jesus did it. Hallelujah. The grace of God in this story, which intervenes and restores and prevents, is just a whisper and a shadow that is fully and ultimately revealed in the cross of Christ. Praise God. So the drama of Genesis 12 is central to Genesis. This is a prefiguring of what's going to happen in Genesis. It's prefiguring what's going to happen in the larger Old Testament and New Testament stories. And like I said, this is also the central drama of your life right now, okay? Every single one of us in this room is like Amber in American Ninja Warrior and Abram in Genesis 12. Every single one of us. We've all had moments of brilliance, maybe even profound moments of faith, and we've all had some epic face-smashing fails. And if you are coming off 
this morning a particularly dumb or embarrassing fail. Listen to me. You're in the right place. Amen? You're in the right place. The church of Jesus is not where perfect people gather. The church of Jesus is not for people who finish the obstacle course. Jesus is the only one who's ever done that. The church of Jesus is for those who have fallen short. Amen? That's what this church is. Welcome. Christ Church Madison, we've been talking a lot about building this church into a spiritual home. And this house is a house of the grace of God. And Jesus says it's the sick who need a physician, not the healthy. So we are the people who have gathered, who have epically failed alongside Abram. So maybe you've never followed Jesus before. Whether you're watching on the live stream or you're here in this room. Maybe similarly you've grown up in church before, but you've never done what Abram did at the beginning where he started to walk towards God and to put himself under the promises of God. If that's where you're at this morning, I want you to know that God has intervened into history and into your life through the cross of Jesus. He has come to step into your mess. He's come to clean your mess up. Your opportunity, should you choose to accept it, is to open yourself up to his intervention. This can be a small first step and I would encourage you to take a small first step. That's what Abram did, he just started walking. We'll have prayer ministers during worship and Eucharist. Go pray with a prayer minister. Come talk to me afterwards. Start reading your Bible. Take any small step you can towards Jesus. Put yourself under the promise of God. See what happens. For those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, but like I said, have recently done something that was really dumb or embarrassing, your opportunity is to reject the lie that your mess is beyond cleaning up. Let me say that again. Your opportunity this morning, hear the gospel, hear the word of the Lord, is to reject the lie that your mess is beyond repair and to believe in the restoring power of the grace of God. If God's grace could clean up a situation like this in Egypt, could he not also untie whatever knots are in your life, whatever knots are in your heart? God's grace is able to transform what was meant for evil into something beautiful. That's what he does in Genesis. That's what he does on the cross. That's what he does in our life. Finally, for some of you, the opportunity this morning is to allow God's grace to intervene in your life to prevent you from doing something that you are currently planning on doing. Sometimes in our sin, we decide to do something. Sin is often decided before it's executed, if you know what I mean. We decide to take a certain path. We might not even know it's wrong or that it's leading us astray, but the path is one of fear or violence or perversion or idolatry and it leads to destruction. And sometimes, like God does in this story, he intervenes to stop us. Sometimes that comes in the form of a lie or a secret sin getting exposed, which is always a grace. Who doesn't want a lie to be exposed for what it is? Sometimes it's just God in his mercy stopping us from getting what we really want, which God knows will destroy us. Marissa and I had some friends over a few weeks ago 
and uh, a woman who grew up in Madison uh, told us her testimony. It was really, really powerful. She grew up in a, in a family that did not follow Jesus at all, and when she was in high school, she started really getting involved in the occult, and she wanted to join a witch's coven, so she tracked down the head leader of this coven and ended up connecting with him, and when she got to talk to him, she wasn't a Christian at all, the guy took one look at her and for some reason got freaked out and said, never come back here again. Get as far away from this as you can, and forced her away. And that night on her bed, she was despondent and full of all these crazy emotions and feelings, and in a vision, Jesus came and sat down on her bed next to her and basically liberated her from all the evil that she was around. And I knew that I was going to preach on this passage when she was telling me that story, and I thought, that is the preventative grace of God. How much does God love that woman? Another time I was preaching in a different church, and I was preaching on David and Bathsheba, but all the things that led up to what happens in that story, and later I was offering uh, prayer ministry, and a guy came up to me who didn't know I was the one offering prayer ministry. He just needed prayer. He was in tears. And he shared with me that he had basically been setting up the dominoes in his life to pursue a path of uh, sexual immorality. He, would, he had decided upon it. But that morning, he basically felt the Holy Spirit get in the way and stop him. We've all sinned, and God's grace always restores. Amen? We come here to be forgiven. None of us are perfect, but sometimes God's grace also gets in the way. This is what Jesus did on the cross for the life of the world. The world was messed up, but Jesus stepped in to save it. If you are feeling that right now with something in your life and you feel the Holy Spirit at this moment pressing in upon you, don't resist him. Don't believe the lie, believe the lie that if it was exposed, it would be bad and you would be ashamed. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to liberate you. He deals so tenderly with those he loves. You have nothing to be afraid of. If you're in that place, like the other two scenarios, I want to challenge you to take a small step of faith. Go to a prayer minister in this service. Talk to me. Pray with a friend. If you're watching on the live stream, you can reach out to me by email or somebody else in our church. Oh, that we might open ourselves up to the intervening, restoring, preventing grace of God. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we continue throughout the rest of this service, Lord, I pray that we would feel so known by you and seen by you. And if we have... If there's anything in our life that has made us think that the grace of God or the intervention of the Holy Spirit is to be feared or kept at arm's length, Lord, would you correct that lie right now? And would we see how merciful your intervention is? How tender your intervention is? And Lord, Christ Church Madison, which this is the first day of us being a fully planted church, after three years, would you fill us up to the brim with grace? Would our barns and our storehouses be bursting at the seams 
with the grace of Jesus Christ, demonstrated us on the cross for us, and ministered to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we pray, as we confess our sins, as we come to the table, as we worship you, would this be a graced next 30 minutes of our life that would go with us when we leave this service. And we ask all these things in the King of Grace, Jesus Christ. Amen.